This is Crime Connections, and we're your hosts. I'm Sarah. And I'm Jackie. Today we wanted to tell you the story of a Sitka teenager whose life was cut short. This is the solved case of Jessica Irene Baggin. The night of Friday, May 3rd, 1996, was like any other weekend night to most, but it was extremely special for Jessica Baggin because it was her 17th birthday. Jessica was one of three children in the Baggin family. In the early morning hours around 1.30 a.m., the elated teen was walking about a mile home after celebrating her big day with her older sister and a friend at her sister's home. Later that morning of May 4th, her parents woke up to find that their daughter did not return home. She disappeared and stays missing for two days. During this time, her parents did what they could. They looked for her, but when she did not return home, they reported her missing in the early morning hours of May 5th. They stayed consistent and kept the Sitka Police Department involved, letting them know she still hadn't returned home or made contact with any friends or family. According to the State of Alaska's press release on this case, Sitka Police Department mobilized a local search and rescue team. They focused their efforts in the wooded area west of the Indian River between the campus of Sheldon Jackson College and Sawmill Creek Road. Soon, a shirt later identified as the one Jessica was wearing when she was last seen alive was located. Jessica was found dead less than two hours later. It was May 6th. Jessica was left discarded and hastily buried in a hollowed out area beneath the trunk of a large fallen tree, approximately 70 feet off a bike path which was parallel to Sawmill Creek Road. Most of her clothing and belongings were found in the immediate area as well. And this area is in the Sitka National Historic Park, which literally, I looked it up on the map, the State Troopers Academy is like two minutes from the college area, so everything is very close. So. I would think a very populated area with like troopers and things like that because it is in, um, I guess in a college area and the area is like heavily walked with trails and stuff. So it makes me think, how did she get dumped? Yeah. It probably would have been like an opportunity thing Mm -hmm. and no one was around when it happened. So the community has less than 10,000 residents And the community found out later that the person responsible left her nude and sexually assaulted her, but also asphyxiated her as well. They also found dirt in her throat, and they believe that it was not inhaled, but rather they forced the person responsible either forced dirt down her throat or potentially shoved her face into the ground. And whoever did this hit her in the face because she also showed a lot of bruising around her eyes. In many articles that I've read about this case, the community as a whole mourned this tragic event. They said in multiple articles that a third of the population showed up for her candlelight vigil, which would have been around 1,500 people. Wow, that's a lot. And when they showed up, it was completely silent like people that went there they said no one said a word you could hear the animals and it was around her area where they had found her so that alone like kind of tells you like okay either everyone is extremely shocked or this just does not happen there women were on pins and needles thinking that they were next and all the men in the town were scared that they were being looked at as like suspects Mm -hmm. so everyone was on edge so there was a huge pressure on the police to find out who did this and why they did it and i think that's why the police pushed so hard to make richard bingham 
the person of interest. In that same press release, they covered the situation with Richard, and this is what it says in the press release, and this is the only thing that they've really ever um, commented on. Nine days after Jessica was discovered deceased, a man confessed to her sexual assault and murder. While there are plenty of circumstantial evidence, it is determined months later that none of the physical evidence collected from the crime scene connected the suspect to an actual crime. The man went to trial for Jessica's sexual assault and murder in early 1997 and was found not guilty on all charges. The hunt for Jessica's killer, the man who matched the DNA, went on. And that is all that the press release said about Richard Bingham. But as you know, we like to find other facts that go along with things. So this is what I found. So by May 15th, that same month, police had a suspect named Richard Bingham, which we just talked about. However, this was a coerced confession. And there is a videotape to prove that, thank God, because the wrong man could be behind bars for Jessica's murder. In fact, he potentially would have spent 120 years or a life sentence for a murder he did not commit. Which, this is extremely upsetting, and we've seen it before, and we'll 100% see it again in later cases that we cover. But when a seriously out-of-character situation for a community happens, the police try so hard to find the culprit of that said crime. Which, I understand, but... At the same time, when you hone in on one individual for a crime, you miss the opportunity and the time frame for the actual suspect that you're looking for. For sure. And it's so many resources wasted. Exactly. Because you're spending all this time focusing on this one person. Thing is, and I know that the investigators deep down had to have known that he wasn't the person, and here's why. I'm not going to sit here and say that Richard was not fully to blame for the situation. However, there's other reasons that kind of make me believe that there should have been someone on his side in this. So Richard came into the police saying he was having flashbacks and he could not remember that night and he wanted help to make sure he had nothing to do with Jessica's murder. Regardless, he showed obvious cues that he did not know anything about her case other than what was already told to the public. He also could not give correct information about what she was wearing that night either. Um, one of the articles that I read said he was saying she was wearing sweatpants, but she was not. So he, he did not have the key details that you needed to base in there. Yeah place in there and so i would like to point out at this time he abused oxycontin frequently and he would drink heavy alcohol so this concoction together would make him black out a lot the night she was murdered he blacked out and he was near that trail where she was found however his brother was his alibi for that night he testified in court that he saw richard earlier that night and that next day he said that richard was wearing the same clothes that he was wearing when he went out he had no visible signs of any kind of like scuffle or defensive wounds or anything like that and he was home around the time that the murder had taken place anyways so he had someone that put him there and i mean you do take it with a grain of salt people cover up for other people for all the sure. time however if he didn't show those defensive wounds then it probably would say right then and there that maybe he had nothing to do with it well and you have to also look at is he strong enough to do what what was done to her and then we also looked into false confessions in general. I found a article by Saul Kasson who did a lot of research on false confessions and he had said that they are not rare at all. More than a quarter of the 365 people exonerated in recent decades by the nonprofit Innocent Project had confessed to their alleged crime and didn't do it. 
Over 30 years of research, Kasson told the legal team how standard interrogation techniques combined with psychological pressures and escape hatches that can easily cause an innocent person to confess. He explained how young people are particularly vulnerable to confessing, especially when stressed, tired, or traumatized by said crime that they're being accused of. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, false confessions happen, unfortunately, all the time. You hear so many times people go to prison for 20 30, 40, 50 years, and then are later proven that they were not guilty at all. Well, and or innocent. Exactly. And so they were saying that they were bringing evidence that proved that he was there that night, and basically they were kind of like tricking him into it, which mm-hmm. we've seen it before. We saw it in the flight to Makate. They tricked those boys into saying what they were saying. They were like, we'll let you go. We'll- yeah. Yeah. So that was, I just thought of that too. And I was like, wait a minute. And I know in a future case that we're going to cover that we've kind of briefly talked about, that was also a coerced confession. So mm-hmm. it's not that abnormal, but it's just as devastating as if because you you don't you put the wrong person behind bars and then you have the real suspect out committing more crimes free for 20 to 30 to 50 years Mm -hmm. and then after that honestly good luck trying to find them yeah because they could i don't know move out of state maybe Mm -hmm. that's what we'll talk about next So, according to the K2 article, when the news of Baggins' death overwhelmed the town, a drinking buddy of Bingham's said he may have something to do with the killing, and soon he was at the police station telling the officers that he was having disturbing dreams and flashbacks, and if they could help him. Now, I would like to say that the... Him and his friends, from everything that I found, they had this little game. I guess they all kind of would, like, black out and stuff and forget things. And they'd always be like, oh, did you hear about that happening on this road? Or they would check, like, the newspapers and they would see, like, oh, this happened last Friday night, last Saturday. And they'd be like, oh, man, did you do that? Like, you got so drunk. That you must have done that. Which, that's a It's stupid. <laughs> it's a weird game. It's stupid. It could be kind of funny. Because, like, how many times do you mess with your friends and they're drunk and you'd be like, dude, do you know what you did at that party last night? Like, you fell down the stairs or something. Mm-hmm. Like, you just come up with stupid yeah. stuff just to mess with your friends. But the problem with this is... And that same article, that the K2 article that I just talked about, Richard was highly susceptible, meaning he was easily convinced that he did or did not do something based on what others would say because he showed intellectual signs of deficiency. And if you are his friend, you would know that. Yeah. Because if you knew that your friend wasn't... Like, he wasn't stupid by any means at all, but he just he would be convinced easily by his peers that he might have done something and if you look up other things that he talks about you will know that if he thought he did something wrong he did everything to try to fix it so if he was so drunk and out of his mind which mixing oxycontin and heavy drinking definitely could do that to you for sure yeah then he might have been like oh my god i need to fix something i need to do something because he had a job he had a place that he was living he was a fully functioning adult man Mm -hmm. he just kind of lacked some things in other areas so he did end up going to trial which meant he spent months in jail for her murder and he also was put in isolated confinement because the other prisoners wanted to hurt him which that's a thing. You go to jail for hurting a young woman, raping a child. I mean, Jessica was technically still a child. Some states don't even allow you to make decisions until you're 21. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to hurt him. And when he was finally taken out of the isolated confinement, he was a huge target. And they would catch people on camera trying to like bully him or hurt him. 
The DNA and other key details did not line up with Richard being their suspect, so when he did go to trial, he was acquitted in less than two hours. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So he spent months in jail, and then he was acquitted in less than two hours. And he actually holds one of the three victims of the state of Alaska cases, which essentially means that he or someone in his attorney group sued the state of Alaska. And I couldn't find out if he won or not, but I'm guessing he must have or something happened because it's listed and there's only three and there's other states like Wisconsin that have a ton. Yeah, and I would guess he did because with the knowledge that we have here, they should have known. Well, and they have a videotape of, like, that's what they showed jurors and that's why the jurors were like, no, it's not him. Because he was, they would say something, they would feed him enough information, they'd be like, you gotta remember you did this. And I couldn't find the exact interview, Mm -hmm. um, I guess... I could not find the exact interrogation videotape because it probably put the state of Alaska in a really bad spot because they must have known. But basically, they would feed him information. He would miss the cues when he was supposed to talk. He didn't know all the details. So it just, it did not line up. And they were pushing so hard for this guy to take the fall and it was not him. So the victims of the state of Alaska case reads as this. In 1996, Richard Bingham made a videotape confessing to the rape and murder of 17-year-old Jessica Baggin. He was acquitted at his 1997 trial because jurors saw on tape that he kept missing all the cues the interrogators fed him as they steered him to the correct details. DNA testing excluded Bingham as the source of the semen found in the victim. The foreign hair found on the victim's body was not Bingham's, nor was the fingerprint found on the cigarette pack at the crime scene. Bingham was also unable to describe the unusual properties of the physical scene where the body was found, nor the unusual way in which the victim had been silenced. Which I'm guessing when they say that, that's with the dirt down her throat. Yeah. My guess is she would, she probably was pushed into the dirt and she was trying to breathe. Yeah, but they say that there must have been force because there was a lot of dirt found in her throat. And I also wanted to point out that they could not have the trial in Sitka because they couldn't find an unbiased jury because the entire town thought it was him because that's what police kind of portrayed, that he was the person. In fact, the family, even though he was acquitted, still believed he did it, which is really unfortunate because, but honestly, I can't blame them. They want justice for their daughter. So when he... Well, you also, I mean, we've seen it time and time again when a police officer or the police force is trying to convict someone and they are making them look so guilty like the suspect the community town etc believe it whether it is true or not yep and it totally ruins the person's life yeah and that's exactly why when he was released he immediately moved out of Sitka with his brother because he knew that he was not in a safe place for him to live and when they never even told him that they found who her real killer was later on he got a phone call from I think it was his brother later on they were like hey they finally found the real killer and that when you listen to his interview with the reporter it kind of does sound like they never gave him any kind of retribution because he was like, you know, they could have at least gave me some sort of money or something. I've had people showing up at my house for years just trying to interrogate me and intimidate me into confessing, and I did not do it. Like, I've had to restart my life so many times. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. And so 
Now that the police are back to no main suspect, they kept using the DNA to compare to ind individuals. They had over 100 people that they would compare the DNA to, and it never matched. So now that the police are back to no main suspect, they are using DNA to compare to other individuals that cross their radar, but with no avail, Jessica's case does go cold and stays cold for another 24 years. The family even hires private investigators out of New York to aid the case, but nothing comes from it. And I would like to like briefly point out the seminal DNA that they did find in Jessica did not belong to her killer, nor did it belong to Richard, but her boyfriend at the time, who testified that they did have relations um, the day before she was murdered. And he was never considered a suspect and did not match the pubic hairs found on the scene. And the pubic hairs didn't match Richard either. Obviously, we know Richard didn't do it, but I just wanted to clarify that. Mm -hmm. And then as for the cigarette packages, I couldn't find when I was researching this specific detail whether or not it even belonged to the crime scene because that was a heavy traffic area. So it could have been anyone that might have yeah. thrown the package down. So they didn't use that as like a testing thing for any of the suspects because who knows whose fingerprints those are. For it sure. It might well, not have been anyone's. People litter all the time. Exactly. So like not surprising. Yeah, so the main things that I found from what the physical evidence they found at her crime scene was the blood that was on her shirt that they found, it, and it wasn't her blood. It was whoever had killed her. Yeah. And then also the pubic hairs. So those are the things that people were getting tested against. So at this time, from everything that I've read, it, it was the pubic hairs and the blood on Jessica's shirt that was being tested against other people that crossed police's radar. What police did not know was that a local man that was currently being charged for a sexual assault against another teenager in the area would be the one to blame. He fit all the markers and lined it perfectly with the timeline that Jessica's murder happened. The man remained under the radar and continued his life in Sitka until he moved out of state in 2010, and this man's name is Steve Branch. At 66 years old, Steve Branch was living a carefree life in Austin, Arkansas, until August 3rd of 2020. When police came to his door and asked if he knew anything about the sexual assault and murder of Jessica Baggin, he claims he knew nothing about her or the crime, which it was so sensational in that town, you had to know something. So that right there would have been like the big red flag for me. Like, yeah. hey, this man's lying because everyone knew about it. When you look up Sitka, she's the first thing that pops up. Well, and not only that, but when you live in a small town like that, if something happens, you hear about it. Period. 100%. And I'm not necessarily saying the town is small, because I don't know for sure, but when you have a population of around 10,000, you're you going to hear, hear about, about it. it. It's going to be the news all over the town. And from everything that I've read, um, it, I think it's called the Daily Sitka Sentinel. It, that's the newspaper they produce every day. Her name was on the front page for literally a year. Like, it was all over it. So there's no way you didn't know about it. So that right there was like a huge red flag. Like, hey, this man is being sketchy. Mm -hmm. And so because he claimed he didn't know anything, the police had to go away. And when they left, not even 30 minutes later, he committed suicide by shooting himself. <gasps> no way. Oh, yeah. And so, because he refused to provide the DNA sample, they couldn't just take it from his um, corpse. They had to get another warrant, and they used that warrant to be able to collect his DNA during his autopsy. On Monday, August 10th, 2020, the state of Alaska's Scientific Crime Detection Laboratory in Anchorage confirmed that Branch's DNA matched the suspect's DNA found on Jessica at that scene. Wow. Yeah. So you might be thinking, well, how did we get all the way to Steve Branch? We went from Richard to Steve. 
and there's like 24 years in between. And that's because of uh, genetic genealogy. So if you've listened to other crime podcasts or any crime shows, they've been talking a lot about it. Genetic genealogy peaked around 2018 and it's been responsible for solving many cold cases. A super famous one was the Golden State Killer if you've heard of that. And then one that actually we've covered was the Terry Rasmussen from Manchester that we had spoken about last month in the They Missed Something podcast. He was caught and prosecuted from killing his own family by using the genetic genealogy. And also they are using it for the John and Jane Doe's. So if you don't know what a John and Jane Doe is, which feel like if you're listening to this crime podcast you probably do but just real quick it is when someone is deceased and they have no idea who they are there's no identifying things and a lot of times that happens when people pass away or are murdered in different areas than what they actually are and then their families look for them and they can never find them Mm -hmm. so then they are put into one of the places is the doe project where they'll list them they'll re kind of configure what they would probably look like if they've been skeletonized that way people can try to figure out is this my missing brother sister xyz and this actually also genetic genealogy is for anyone out there as well you can get this done and when we talk about our first case that we ever covered the freezer baby case when adam smith did the 23andme testing that's how he found out he had other siblings Mm -hmm. and if you ever wanted to get genetic genealogy, you can use 23andMe or the Ancestry DNA, and you can allow police to have your DNA, which, I mean, could be good and bad for you if your uncle killed somebody. I don't know. but yeah, Don't do anything shady and it's fine. Yeah, don't do anything <laughs> shady and it's fine. But you can allow the police to have access to this, and they can build DNA profiles based off of your DNA because they'll be able to say, oh, your DNA kind of matches markers in this cold case or this mm-hmm. this case that might not be cold that they're using genetic genealogy for. So in the same press release, they talk about how the potential leads ended with the DNA comparisons clearing suspect after suspect, which forced the investigators to take different angles for this case. And September of 2018, the cold case investigation unit of Sitka Police Department discussed utilizing a new forensic DNA procedure called the genetic genealogy that we just talked about. And after reviewing the DNA evidence in the case, the state of Alaska's scientific crime detection laboratory determined there was enough DNA. So from the original crime scene, a single nucleotide polymorphism profile or SNP was able to be submitted to the Parabon Nano Labs, which they are the reason that a lot of these cases that are cold are getting solved right now. So that happened and within a few weeks from them submitting it, they started their investigation on that SNP profile. In February 2019, the SMP and DNA profile was developed, uploading into a public genealogy database, which we just talked about. You can allow law enforcement to have access to that. And by the end of the year, after months of genealogical research, a new suspect emerged, which was Steve Branch. Investigators established that Branch did live in Sitka at the time of Jessica's murder. And they also learned that in March of 96, Sitka PD investigated him for sexually assaulting another teenager at the time, which we just talked about. But he was indicted and arrested for the incident in June of 96, and then he was acquitted for the trial in 1997, which I don't understand how, if they knew that he did it, then all of a sudden he was acquitted. It was like... I would assume lack of evidence. 
Yeah, because unfortunately, a lot of times pe the PD anywhere knows who the suspect is, but unfortunately doesn't have, have the evidence to convict. That's most likely what had happened there. But a few months before Jessica was murdered, he had done something to another teenage girl. So it clearly kind of shows a pattern of him getting progressively worse. Mm -hmm. And they didn't even look into him, which I don't know how they wouldn't if he was already accused of rape. But I mean, just because you're a rapist doesn't mean you're a murderer. But it doesn't mean you can't get to that point. Yeah, you know? for sure. In January of 2020, the cold case unit reached out to the Arkansas State Police and said, hey, we need your assistance on this case. We think that a man living in your area might be responsible for this cold case in Sitka. And so they were trying to collect DNA secretly, like just by like someone maybe drinking out of a glass and throwing say, it away. I know they can go through garbage most of the time because it's on public. Yeah, so I think that's exactly what they did because they actually got the DNA from someone in his family. Oh. And so they used their DNA and compared it to the one in their system and it didn't match up completely but it matched up enough that it would have proved that Steve Branch was the person responsible for the DNA on the crime scene of Jessica's murder. Yeah. And that's kind of how they figured it all out. So they used a public profile for DNA. Then they found, okay, it kind of matches this guy. He was living in the area. Then they got the DNA DNA from one of his family members and then they were like yep that's pretty freaking good so they wanted to kind of solidify all of that that's why they went to his house mm -hmm. and then he was like nope don't know anything refused and then he committed suicide because he was guilty well and to even go back to you saying you know you're we're shocked that they didn't question him in the first place with a small. population so small why in the world would they have not known about him that's what i'm saying that's where like it kind of as a person listening to it i mean it hindsight's 2020 like mm -hmm. you don't you won't know until something and it, it, i'm sure that's what kind of racks the original investigator's brain because he said this was his case that he could not get over mm -hmm. and he's continued to work on even after his retirement and so i'm sure that's something that he's like oh my god like that was right there in front of us this whole time and we didn't even look into it yeah, unfortunately, it was probably a small detail that fell through the cracks because it happens. In cases, it seems like that's what always happens. These smallest details fall through the cracks, which then create a cold case for 20 to 30 years. Right. Jessica's cold case is closed by exception because the person that matched the DNA on the crime scene did kill himself before troopers could arrest him, which it was leading to that point. They knew he was their guy. And... Her family never got the justice I think that they were deserving of or that maybe they wanted because he took the easy way out. Mm -hmm. Instead of him sitting in a cell thinking about what he did every day, he got to live his life out for 24 years, almost 25 years. Yeah. No problems. And then as soon as he's confronted about it, boom, he kills himself. So that, I mean, at the end of the day... I'm sure everyone, and myself included, the world is a better place because now you have this man off the streets. Oh, yeah. And definitely. he's not going to be able to hurt anyone else. And the thing is, if he was arrested for potentially sexually assaulting another teenage girl, then he killed Jessica, then who who in between that time frame? Sure. You're not going to tell me that he didn't do anything else in that 24 to 25 years. 
Yeah, because I really don't believe the whole one and done. I think if your brain thinks that's okay to do and wants to do it, and knows he got away for, got away with it for that long, where in between all that time? Because he moved to Arkansas in 2010. So from 1996, when he killed Jessica, he was on trial and acquitted for the other one in 19. 97 so mm-hmm. from 97 to 2010 that's a big gap of time we don't know what he was doing in between then i couldn't find that well, but then from so 2010 many... 10 more years you're in different states and now when you cross state lines it's harder for investigators to put things together so yep. what even counties you you cross yeah. a county and they don't they don't like to share they don't communicate things so i'm just wondering if there was more and it's going to be like the they missed something case where it's like wait a minute yeah and we look into this later on and we're like wait this might have lined up perfectly with mm-hmm. this guy. Well, and so many women get sexually assaulted. And don't report it. it. Yep. Especially if she was under 18, she was younger, and this older man did this to her. So some other facts that we found about Sitka, Alaska, that they are famously known for their recreational and commercial fishing. I read a few articles that she was looking into possibly working in the commercial fishing community uh, when she graduated, but obviously, unfortunately, that did not happen. And then the crime rate in Sitka, Alaska is relatively low. If you look up the crime stats, they are higher, but that is due to the population being so low. So if one little thing happens, it completely messes their percentage yeah because i found it's like the best places.net and like neighborhood scouts which people sometimes will look at before they move to an area somewhere yeah yeah and so sitka looks like they have this crazy high crime rate but that's because they don't have very many people well yeah if two three things happen and you only have ten thousand people your crime rate now just totally screwed up the percentage i read something like they're the 21st safest city in the united states which they would have been like way they would have been probably in like the top 10 if some of these things didn't happen Mm -hmm. we also found that she was carrying at the time of her murder a green little pouch that had a handmade teakwood marijuana pipe in it and that still to this day has never been found so I'm not sure if he maybe had gotten rid of it when he moved. Yeah, but they were thinking that whoever committed her, this crime took that as like a trophy, but they've never been able, I didn't find anything that they found it in his house when they did the search. Well, you would think they would mention it. Yeah. That would be just another link to her. To her. Yeah, that would, been a, that would have been like, oh, well, even if we wouldn't have been able to get his DNA, the fact that he would have had that that was so specific to Jessica mm-hmm. that it would have been like, mm, we just got you hook, line, and sinker. For sure. Yeah, because that's a direct link. There's obviously... There's no reason you would have that unless mm-hmm. you either committed the crime or you robbed her or something. Yeah, exactly. So we hope that you enjoyed the episode. And as always, like us on Facebook at Crime Connections and follow us on Instagram at Crime Connections Pod. And if you're enjoying our episodes, please like and subscribe to us wherever you listen to the podcasts. And leave us a review if you like us. I mean, if only you good ones. <laughs> <laughs> only if good you don't, reviews. Don't. <laughs> um, oh, really quickly. Also, we will be switching things up a little bit starting here in August. We will be releasing our episodes on 
Wednesdays instead at 5 a.m. same time. Just it's more convenient with both of our work schedules. Yes. Because if something goes wrong, which sometimes just tends to happen happen. with me and Jackie, it's just easier because that's Jackie's off day. So so I can, you know, fix it immediately versus you guys being like, hey, you misspelled this. Or you guys, we can't hear, we can't get a hold of the podcast for some reason. So we just wanted to make sure that you as a listener get the best quality and what we can offer is on Wednesdays. On Wednesdays. (laughs) So thank you so much. Thanks, guys.